Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. All right, gang, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. As your host, Jeff Bloomfield, occasionally I get these fortuitous, serendipitous introductions to people that immediately I recognize is going to be an awesome guest on our show. And today's guest, Hang Black, is exactly one of those. I happened to be speaking at an event that she was also speaking at several months back. Um, and the minute that I heard her story and just kind of met her and talked a little bit about her background, I thought, boy, she's she's a world changer. She's driving change, as we talk about through her own personal story. And I just couldn't wait to get her on. It's taken us a little while to get it scheduled, but today's the day. And so Hang is joining us. And Hang has got such a unique story. I don't want to give away too much of it, but she's a Vietnamese immigrant. She's also a dedicated mother. She's been a seasoned uh, technology executive. Her background is so fascinating to me because she's been hugely successful in the business world and engineering and marketing and sales leadership and entrepreneurship. She's kind of become known now as the sales enablement guru in her world and the business world. But it's really her background and her diversity of background that I want to hear from her today and where she's going with her mission and her purpose. She's been recognized as the most visionary revenue technology evangelist uh, through the acquisition of international influential businesswomen in San Francisco just this year. She was the woman of impact of 22 through Quinnipiac University. Revenue Enablement Leader for all you business geeks out there in 2021 from the Sales Enablement Collective and the author of Embrace Your Edge. I'm holding a copy of it right here in my hand. Embrace Your Edge. You can see it here. If you haven't gotten it, go down and grab it. It's Pave Your Own Path as an immigrant woman in the workplace. And it's going to be, if you're not an immigrant woman in the workplace, trust me, you're going to want to hang on for this episode because she's got so much value to all of us listening today and to how we can think different so that we can act differently, especially around people who have maybe a different perspective, point of view or background than we do. So, Hang, it's an honor to have you on the show. So excited to dive in with you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, but I thought this was so special. I just had to jump in, especially um, as we're coming into Thanksgiving month. This is perfect. This is perfect. So, well, as we talked about, I told you the only the only uh, question ahead of time that you get is the first question, which is your why, which is your origin story. So walk the group through a little bit of your background and your story, because it's so compelling because it really will help us and inform us to where you're going next. And because for everybody that knows the show, where you've come from has a lot to do with where you're going and it informs a lot of that. So tell us a little bit about your story. Um, thank you for that. So my story starts very young in a very um, enriching environment, meaning when I was two years old, Saigon fell April 30th, 1975. My family escaped one day before on April 29th. What that meant on the roads were two parents, eight children, and two subordinates of my father's from the South Vietnamese Army, driving around for hours in a car the size of a VW bug. 
if you're counting, that's 12 people. So we had actually left my grandparents, my father's parents, on the side of the road and said, wait here, the car's too full and stuffy. We'll come back and get you when we find safe passage out of the country. Well, we were detoured on the roads that had been bombed um, section after section and ended up at the port of Saigon. On the waters, what that meant was if you were lucky enough to rush a cruise ship and make it onto the cruise ship, the goal was to, to get into uh, onto a barge in the middle of the ocean, which is an artillery barge. So you can imagine there's ammunition all around, easily, easy to blow up. Um, and then you would wait for an aircraft carrier, hopefully, to come by and get you. Well, the aircraft carrier can't really come by until there's humanitarian needs, which means that people are starving and dying. Once there, in order to get to the aircraft carrier, you have to wait for it to come by. And you have to wait for a large wave to bring up a small boat onto the side of the of the aircraft carrier, bridging the gap from two to three stories to two to three meters, at which point there's a single thick docking line over the side of the carrier. You catch it and climb up. Well, I'm two years old at the moment. And so you can imagine I'm probably not going to make it up on my own. And I don't think there were baby Bjorns at that time. So what happened was a gentleman turned to my mother and asked, and asked her, will you let me throw the baby? And she said, um, I don't think so. Hard pass. I'm going to double back. But at the moment, she also looked up and she saw that her 13-year-old daughter had already gone up. So which child do you leave behind? She turns to the stranger who throws me to yet another complete stranger onto the carrier and catches me by one chubby little hand. That's the beginning of my story. As my brother, who was nine years old, looked down at the time, he noticed a bunch of floating black pants, which is the garment of women and girls in my country, which meant he was counting dead bodies. And he remembers at that time thinking, which means a single life is not worth a single red penny. So if you can imagine that, eventually all 10 of us were able to make it to the U.S. We did not make contact with my grandparents for another few years when there were, um, when we could finally have communication relationships between the U.S. and Vietnam. Um, but the net of it is when we made it to the U.S., we came over with nothing. My father, who was, uh, you know, who was high ranking in the army, came over and became a janitor. My mother, who was a high ranking administrator in the, um, in the school system, came over and started folding clothes at the equivalent of, um, of a bargain store. So we had to start over in Louisiana, one of the most racially charged states in America at that time. But the interesting thing is we were loved by all races. We were not implicitly included nor explicitly excluded. And from there, I learned the gift of perseverance, agency through adversity, and lifelong observation without judgment. So that's my launch point, Jeff. Wow. It's, it's, it's such an incredible story in the, in the vivid you know, visuals of what you went through at two that probably have very little recognition. 
Um, have you ever talked to your siblings about that in depth? Like what they, cause they were old enough to probably have like really, really vivid memories of that moment of that wave and that launch and the getting to that boat. I mean, what is their perspective like? You know, it's interesting because they were also different ages. So the younger ones thought of it as a game. You know, they thought of it as, okay, we're racing almost like a plane, a game of duck, duck, goose, because even to get to, even to get to the boat, it was squat down and run for 10 meters until the, until the um, F-16 started firing again, because there were so many people rushing towards that, those boats, you know, um, and they would squat again and then wait until the, the, the gunfire die down and then they would run again. So some of them thought it was a game for the older ones. It was absolutely terrifying. They remember yelling at my parents. Once we got onto the aircraft carrier, how dare you leave grandparents behind not understanding that it was already tearing my, my parents' hearts. And of course the perspective of my parents as 40 something year olds, leaving everything behind country, language, family, community to start over and give their children a better life. So at, you know, two years old, I don't remember any of this, but what I've done is documented the collective memory between everyone um, to share the story that was, is quite, you know, we think about the strife that we face today and it really puts it into perspective in what I call first world problems, you know, and, and try to come back with a little bit more gentility and humanity towards others. Would um would your grandparents, and I'm not sure how old they were at the time, but would they have struggled to make that leap onto the boat at the time? So would it have been really not good for them to have even tried? Yeah, it, it would have been tougher for sure. Now, there were yeah. people who made it over to older at uh, an older age, but most likely those were um, airlifted um, and they right. probably had connections to be airlifted. But there were definitely people who made it older when older, but would be tougher. Would've been harder. So, so you guys end up landing in Louisiana. Um, why Louisiana? What was is that? Just where the the ship came into the port there in New Orleans, or what? 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 What was the reason for that area? No, there were four entry points into the United States. One of them being Arkansas, which we came through. Another one being Camp Pendleton, where um, in California, where a lot of the women learned how to do nails, and that's in itself a separate uh, funny story. Um, we actually were brought through Arkansas. And in the first nine months, we went from Arkansas to Chicago, where my sponsors were. They themselves were a Lithuanian immigrant family, and they brought us along. When my sponsor came to the camp, he actually, I asked him at his 90th birthday, I asked him, how were you so brave to sponsor a family of 10 who's, you know, it didn't speak English and you yourself are not a native English speaker. And he said, when I went to the camp, they gave me a list of single men because it would be easier to sponsor them. And I asked them for the largest family that nobody wanted. Um, so I really blessed those who pick up the discarded. Well, he lived in Chicago. We were there for a while. And then we went to Michigan, where my aunts uh, from my mother's side had had. Um, had landed. We were there for a few months, decided it was too cold. And a general who's a friend of my father um, got my job, my father a job in Baton Rouge, Louisiana as a social worker, ironically, to help process and assimilate immigrants into the United States. 
Um, and that job, there was a much larger Vietnamese community, as you can imagine, in Louisiana than there would be in Michigan. So we came back there for the community and for the opportunity for my mom, for my father to really drive change. Um, so I really had the pleasure of going to the airport every few weeks as I was growing up to pick up new immigrants from all different types of political crises through the years. Wow, we talk about this, about this a lot. I love that you use that first world problems thing. But, you know, every decision that we make in, in our life has some type of ripple effect, some type of implication, whether it's a small thing we do every day or bigger things. And you think about the series of ripple effects that decisions made, were made from the moment your parents loaded the whole family up into that basically VW bus style car, even probably before that, the series of decisions that had to be made to then get to there, to then get to the next place, to get to the next place. And the decisions that were made like the Lithuanian immigrant who's, who said, I'll take on the, the largest family. And every decision we make has implications downstream that we may never see sometimes in our entire lifetime. And yet we live in this place in America now where we take for granted Sometimes that these decisions have drastic implications, even on generations in our own family line of what we can have, the impact we can have on the next generation to come. And I'm thinking about your story and that that is to me, you're, you know, your dad. So you're in Baton, you guys are in Baton Rouge. He's probably relatively new to English, I would think. Right. He probably didn't come across come from Vietnam speaking great English initially. Right. Uh, not initially. Uh, however, my father's um, journey was also really interesting. He didn't graduate. Um, he didn't graduate high school even. So he came in as infantry. And there are very few special cases where, uh, where sergeants get to go to officer's school. So he was actually sent to the United States in 1955 to Aberdeen, Michigan, to learn to be an officer. Um, so he did come over with some amount of English. Okay. And actually that's actually, that's how he got into the boat because originally you could only come on if you were uh, a, a women or children under the age of 16. And my father knew enough English to help translate and was able to get on to the boat that eventually took us to Guam. Um, so he can, he had a little bit, but you can imagine coming over to a brand new country with a wildly different language, even if you've heard it and used it before at nearly the age of, uh, I think they were 44 at the time. Um, it would be really, really tough to start over. Yeah, absolutely. So you're growing up down there for the most part in, in the deep South, in Louisiana, and you're seeing down there, I mean, it's, it's, different levels of diversity, right? The different, and yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think if I remember in your book, you, you went to a school that had a lot of different cross-section of humanity, but yet you had your own struggles and challenges because um, you still didn't look like a lot of the people. Then you switched schools. So tell us a little bit about your experiences with cultural experiences growing up in that setting. Yeah. Um, in Louisiana, especially the schools that I went to, I would say they were probably like 40% um, black Americans and 40% Caucasian Americans. And there was kind of the others. Um, but we didn't really get to a tipping point where there were many of us. So I was able to be friends with everyone. But as I mentioned before, neither implicitly included nor explicitly excluded. They'd obviously play with me during the day, but getting invited to birthday parties and those types of things are a little bit more challenging. Um, that being said, there was an interesting part of my 
third grade experience where I had to leave for a few months. My mother came down with cancer, so she went to live with my with my aunts for a few months to um, uh, to get it treated. So I transferred to a different school in a different state, and it was such a different experience. I had not until that point felt like I had experienced racism. Maybe it existed and maybe I just didn't know. Um, but my experience was completely different. I was um, pushed off the swings by girls every morning. And I was uh, when I was waiting for my aunts to pick me up in the evenings, I was spat on quite often by little boys on bikes. So um, there happened to be one evening where the girls decided to pick on me after school. And there were about seven of them that surrounded me and decided that they were going to beat me up. Um, and all I will say was it was a little bit terrifying, obviously, but sometimes you have to lean into stereotypes. And I had watched enough Bruce Lee movies that I got into a really aggressive horse stance, um, stared them down, and half of them left and the other half, let's just say there were no teachers around and I got out just fine. But I'll tell you, the more beautiful part of that story is I actually made friends with them. And that's just kind of what I do. And I maintain that through my adult life because I don't think generally people act with malice. I think generally they act out of ignorance, lack of awareness. Um, I often think, especially with children, Lessons are caught, not taught. So my lesson from that was it was two different sets of girls who were not friends. I befriended them from kindness and explaining my story a little bit more, being curious about them. And when I left a few months later, those two groups themselves became friends. And I think that's the magic of compassion and understanding and curiosity. So... And you did that out of partly because of who you were, who you are, but, but also out of necessity, right? You saw that there's a survival mechanism, that this is the best way to operate um, in, this, in these groups of disparate people. What, what I'm always fascinated with from a neuroscience standpoint is, you know, the brain's number one job is survival. It, it doesn't think about being you know, innovative and creative and divergent and inclusive and compromising and all. It doesn't think about any of that stuff until it's at a place where it feels safe. And because of our biology, right, wrong, or indifferent, the brain interprets anything, anyone that looks, feels, acts, and behaves different than the source code as potentially dangerous. So already we're overcome. We have to overcome almost instinctive built-in survival mechanisms to be open to someone who's different than us. So I'm curious as to your journey, because we're going to get into your education and the fact that you went on to get an engineering, chemical engineering degree and all that kind of stuff just blows my mind. But the idea, I love your perspective on this because the idea of how we're wired biologically almost to be divisive with those who are different than us out of fear. And the fact that if you don't learn in an environment as a child through great parents and education, that, 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 that our differences are actually a good thing that we learn from each other, you will naturally be 
be bent towards wanting to be in your own group. That's right. Out of a just a complete ignorance of self-preservation. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, familiarity is key. And the thing is, especially, it's easier to be different physically. So I'm not really going to talk about neurodiversity, um, the LGBTQ community, not because I don't care, but because I don't think I've earned the right to speak to it because I don't belong in those communities. So let's put that aside for just a moment. Physical difference is just much easier to spot. And like you said, the amygdala really kicks into fight or flight. So I had the pleasure of reading Chris Voss's book and also getting uh, to meet him um, during over the during the pandemic over a virtual environment. And I remember very distinctly, he said, credibility is earned by two elements, trust and competence. And trust is easier to gain when we're part of the same community. We look alike. We run in the same circles. Okay, so that's Mark 1 that's going to put you on the back foot already. And then competence is Mark 2. So competence can also be lent by um, network. Somebody vouches for you. Okay, so a lot of us who come in as immigrants, we don't have that natural, uh, naturally built in network. So how, what do you do about it? On the trust side, um, you have to find commonality. You have to find those things that may originally look different. But what are the personality uh, commonalities? For instance, I typically hung around nerds. I love my nerds. That is my community. Um, I love, uh, you know, I love uh, people who are really into shoes. And I always tell everyone, when you are lacking conversation, male, female, whatever, always talk about the shoes. And either people hate them or they love them. But it's a point of conversation that's really interesting and, and somewhat funny. Um, but there's so many areas that we're more alike than we are different when we when we bother to dig below the surface. Now, competence, that's all up to you. And that's harder. And you'll hear folks say that if I'm different, the bar is higher. And that's true. And we have to just accept the fact that the bar is higher and you have to work harder, but it's still within your control to earn that, that trust, but that, that competence by just being really, really damn good at what you are. Yeah. And I, and I do, I love that. And we talk a lot about it here at Brain Trust that there's personal trust and there's professional credibility and they come from different places and they're formed in the brain differently, which is exactly what you're, you're alluding to. And the thing that I, it's frustrating. It's maddening to me in our culture today. And I think it's globally, but especially here in the United States, if we all just got down to the basics of what we share in common from a human value standpoint, they're universal, universal human values, universal human beliefs, you know, forget about political, religious, all the different things that, that tend to be divisive in nature, but just the universal fundamental human values that we share in all the things that we have when you, and the only way to know those, we say it's shared values through shared stories is you have to really be curious enough to understand someone else's story. And if you and I had never met in our conference that we spoke at, I would have never sat down with you and wanted to hear more about your story. And you wanted to hear more about my story. So we wouldn't have recognized that, man, we actually share so much in common from a value standpoint. So therefore now we have personal trust. That's right. And then when I start to look at your professional competency to your point, 
and everything you've accomplished and who you are as a person and your sales enablement expertise and all the things that you learn, education and performance and all the things that we and I, you and I share in common professionally. Well, then now we've got something to build upon because I feel like we have this, well, we can trust each other personally through our shared values, but we can respect each other professionally through our shared competency. So now we can go do something. That's right. Right. And it isn't superficial. It's meaningful now because we have both of those. I think that's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then once we ha- we've built that trust, guess what? And here's, here's the work. Um, we go introduce other people in our networks to each other so that your network becomes more diverse through me and my network actually becomes more, more diverse through you. You have a bank of storytellers that are extremely fascinating and, and have their own competencies in different ways. Uh, when I look at mentorship and sponsorship, um, I look at my own team. I end up having a very diverse team, not just through what's physical, but I have pastry chefs, dancers, musicians on my team just because they know that this is a place where uh, they can come to be safe and unique and better together. Yeah, I, I love that. And I know it's simple. It's simplified. I wrote it on a, on a whiteboard over there on the other side of our, outside of our studios. I can still see it here. And it's, it's, it's hard as a, as a middle-aged white guy now to have a voice sometimes in some of these DE&I uh, conversations. And I'll just be honest with you. So sometimes I get excluded from the conversation, which I'm okay with because, we, you know, we've earned it. So I wrote down diversity of experiences, equity based on effort, and inclusion of everyone as what I think DE&I should stand for. Now, it's easy for me to say that as someone who, you know, who's, who's cognitively biased toward being blind to the advantages that I might have had. It's easy for me to say, hey, I grew up poor on a farm and I, had, I didn't, I earned everything I got, but I still have advantages in our economy, in the workplace. I do, I have, right? Because I'm an outgoing, outspoken white guy with an education who can hold a couple sentences together. So I probably have had some advantages. And you're probably tall too. I think you're, I think you're over six feet. I'm six two. Yeah, I'm tall as well. So I fit the mold, right? I literally fit the mold of central casting of what a leader should look like in our culture. And so now that's changing a lot, which it's, it's, it's changed a lot over the last several years, but I won't deny that I've had those advantages that I've been blind to, right? Just, just have. So talk to us a little bit about then you go on and get an education. You got a, you get your degree in chemical engineering from UT in Austin, and then you get into the workplace. And how did you go from? being an engineer, a chemical engineer major to being an expert in sales, in sales and marketing, sales enablement. Like we're, those two don't seem to make, they don't normally necessarily kind of coincide. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you heard already, I think I've always, I've always been used to being a little bit of an odd duck <laughs> and living a life in between, which has always made me really curious about something other than what I'm currently doing. Um, Growing up in the South, I was really stuck between a very autocratic Eastern philosophy and a very autonomous Western philosophy. Like, let's start there, you know, um, a society where you sit down and shut up and listen to your elders and in a society that says living in America means dream big, think big and follow your heart. Um, so the good news is even though I didn't have a network, uh, a natural net worth like my parents. Think about all these immigrants that come through. They don't know what a GT program is. They can't afford tutors, even if they knew what they were. Um, they don't know about SAT prep classes. But my teachers stepped in. 
They were my network that helped me understand. And I know there, uh, you probably have a lot of immigrant followers out there and uh, they can probably resonate with the fact that oftentimes you would fill out the forms for your parents because there's all in English and you would bring it home and say, sign here. <laughs> That's what we right. do. Um, so fortunately I was able to find my own programs through my teachers. I got a full ride scholarship at a couple universities, ended up at UT Austin where I got an engineering degree midway through my, uh, university career. I'd asked my parents, I'd really like to change over to business because I really like the, uh, the financial side and my parents very sternly said, you are Asian doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, pick one. So I stuck with engineering and I did that for almost a decade. I have multiple patents in semiconductor manufacturing and I kind of felt like I did what I did, what I needed to do there. It was the end of my curiosity and I wanted to go into marketing. So I started doing stretch projects in marketing, um, ended up moving over to marketing, did that for nearly a decade in product management, product marketing, central marketing. And then I felt like I learned everything I had to learn um, in marketing. I, I'm a little bit of a sponge and and quite easily bored uh, and quite restless. So um, then I went over to sales and I really feel like I found my home. And the beautiful part of it is with revenue enablement, I get to take all the skills I learned in engineering, everything about frameworks uh, for scale and then everything I learned in marketing and then employ it in, in enablement. And in that space, I get to be the interstitial tissue that speaks to the other organizations. I understand what outcomes they want to deliver. And yet I understand how to speak to the revenue side of the house to make sure that we drive, um, we drive to uh, customer success and retention. So that's kind of my circuitous journey. And it all just starts with being, you know, somewhat curious. Um, and I would say the first part of my career, I was very typical, short, shy, and Asian. I did not fit the mold. And so it is often surprising I would find, you know, I got stuck at one point in my career. I'd always been a top 10% employee, and at some point I got stuck. What I didn't realize at, is that for women is typically at what's called the missing rung, which is that first step into leadership. So I'd done all the things to be a doer, it was really hard to be seen as a leader. So I couldn't do anything about being short and Asian. So I just dropped the shy, which also was very curious for people because they expect Asian women to be, um, to be meek. I mean, I come in and listen, I have to recognize that I come with certain privileges. We all do. Being white adjacent, being Asian, I walk in and there's an assumption that I'm smart. There's also an assumption that I'll be quiet and submissive. Um, so I think we have to realize our own biases before we can look at biases in others. And the reason white men quite enjoy my book too is because there's no privilege shaming and no victim blaming. Jeff, I know that you worked hard to get to where you are. I recognize that. And I know there's some things that you do that, um, or, uh, people like you do that is not intentionally exclusive. However, what we need to think about is what are our own biases, my, myself included, and then what do we do about it? I may not be intentionally exclusive, but what am I doing to be intentionally inclusive? There's a huge difference there, and that's where the work is. 
Yeah, and that's your mission right now is to teach people that, right? And through lots of different ways. So so what are some what are some tips that you would give folks, regardless of your background, whether it be you know, your your background and who you are, where you come from, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. What 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 are some tips that are universal that would help all of us think differently about how do we become more that intentionally inclusive in our workplace today? I would say just remember that being the minority in a room doesn't have to do with gender. It doesn't have to do with ethnicity. It often does, but there are other aspects of it. And in certain environments, there are, there are less than just to, to your point, Jeff, when I used to run diversity sessions, I would also invite men and typically there are less of them. And typically they sit in the back of the room and they don't typically, they don't speak much. And when they do, they are spoken over. It is just an inherent part of being a minority in the room because when you do get to speak, you want to make sure you're really judicious about it so you're really heard. So there's a beautiful quote that I've heard. Diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusion is having a voice at the table. Equity is having your voice be heard. So if we think about diversity and inclusion as, hey, it's just listening and hearing a uh, the opinion of the smaller group in the room, again, no, without victim blaming, without privilege shaming, understanding where they come from, and then be able to teach back. This is how it makes me feel, and this is what I'm going to do to be intentional about it. And I'll give you some examples. Um, and I know that you we we did this exercise when we were live together. If you were to think about your your inner circle, the three to five people that you go to for professional advice, whether you're in the restaurant business, the music business, corporate business, who are your three to five advisors? What do they look like? Are they, are they a diverse population? And if not, do you have an opportunity to make it diverse? And by the way, your three to five advisors can be different depending on what type of advice you're looking for. And when I talk about diversity, again, it's age, it's gender, it's it's tenure, it's ethnicity, it's all sorts of things. Then when you look at your three to five, you look at, okay, does the rest of my team understand the rules of engagement? Because there's an assumption that we that we all act the same. But what if culturally we have different um, we have different organic modes of operating. So when we have a one-on-one, is it okay to do a walk and talk? Do I have to be cameras on? Do I have to be in place or can I be driving in a car? Um, When we start our meetings, is it okay to be, it's the preference of the leader to be on time five minutes late or five minutes before? Because I can tell you as a daughter of military, if you're on time, you're late. And if you happen to be a little early to the meeting, guess what? You get to be part of the meeting before the meeting and you actually get to build a relationship. We have an assumption that that's understood, but we actually haven't really talked about it. The final thing I would say is if you're going to bring in others into a conversation and create programs to help elevate how we recruit, retain, um, and nurture our talent, think about bringing those people into the, the design of the program itself. If it's one population designing and high-fiving themselves on rolling out a program and it doesn't work and they keep doing it again. You know what Einstein says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So bring in the people for whom you are trying to elevate when designing those programs. 
so that you can make sure you have a really healthy network, pipeline, and succession plan. Yeah, I love that. And we've experienced this recently here at Braintrust. Um, and I have a, then I have a personal question I want to end with with you. Um, you know, one of our global clients is GE Aerospace. And so we've spent the last month with some of our coaches in Shanghai and Da Nang, actually, in London and Budapest. And, and what we've recognized is, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good, really, a cross section of we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the conversations about folks here in America. A lot of times in the corporate boardrooms and all of our environments, but it really becomes manifest quickly when you're trying to communicate cross culturally with people that are completely different backgrounds, lang- languages in general. And so, it's no different though, right? It's that concept of the curiosity of what do they value. How do they see the world? Can you look at the world through their eyes for a minute so that you can relate to them the universal human values to build the trust to then try to add value to them professionally? But it really kind of gets thrown in your face quickly when you realize that when you're, when you're outside of the borders of America and you're trying to communicate with people in other cultures. But the reality is it's the same concepts, right, of these groups inside of our, com- inside of our country that are so – Sometimes they're divisive because of so we won't even get into the politics of it. But most of the time in corporate America, it's just simply a lack of recognition from an emotional intelligence standpoint that this exists. And I love your definition of what diversity means, equity means, inclusion means. I love your, I love your, your tips on how to start doing more of that intentionally. And by the way, we do share the five minutes late is five minutes early is late because I was raised by a Marine. <laughs> so we, but you bring up such a great point. If you don't talk about it, like I can't be the only person in the company who knows being on time is important. It has to be a shared standard. That's right. And you give great, great examples of that. Okay. So here's my, my big personal question. So my oldest daughter, so I'm raising two daughters. One's, one's, one's supposedly an adult now. She is, she's doing great. She's 23, just got engaged. She's my oldest. My middle is my son who's freshman in college, but my youngest is my princess Priya who we adopted from India when she was two. She's now 10. And so she's kind of my, she's kind of my heartbeat right now. I have to raise her. She's being raised in a community of people that don't look like her. And so we try to, you know, make sure we expand her, our horizons with her to be around more people that aren't just kind of like white suburban. But what should I be thinking of? How should I be parenting her as a father in a culture where I want her to grow up to believe that it doesn't matter what you look like, though it does, it matters kind of your integrity about your values and how do you, how do you not get, how how do you, how are you comfortable in your own skin regardless of where you've come from? What should I be making sure I'm mindful of as a parent, as a father, especially of a daughter who I love more than life, but who's very different in like where she's born, she's born in India, in the middle of nowhere, in a city so close to the border of Guwahati and, and Guwahati and close to, to the almost China. Yet I'm raising her in this environment. It's very different with a lot of privilege. Like what, what are some things you would advise me on as a dad to get right? Um, not the same, but, um, but tangentially similar. My children uh, they fondly call themselves Asian. They're half white, half Asian. And, um, and I tell them all the time, they are now part of the privileged class. Just because you have color in your blood doesn't make you automatically not privileged. Um, 
So the way we raise our children is to understand that color does matter. There are a lot of people that say, my children don't see color, they see people. If you don't see the color, you actually don't see the full person. Okay. So recognizing that in the first place, but then also celebrating what's uniquely different about both cultures, yours and hers, and ensuring that she has an opportunity to learn about her culture with um, with people who would have been uh, her biological parents' age as well, um, with surrounding her with folks that would be biologically um, biologically her siblings that are raised in that culture so that they can share and compare differences. And by the way, not only her culture and Indian culture, but other cultures as well. So we, you know, obviously those two will probably be a lot more meaningful her, to her. They just are. We are as humans. We again, going back to um, our caveman brain, we like to be around what's similar, but being able to feed the curiosity around other cultures, um, I think also is really important. So I had committed to my children, and again, I'm privileged enough to do it. I had to, I committed to my children when they were six months old to bring them to one international country a year. At this point, um, I'd have to say that they've seen more countries than they have states in America, but you know, they love all different types of food. Um, they love all types of different, to hear different types of language. They try to pick it up as, as a, as uh, meaningfully as they can on their trips. And for the first time, we're bringing them back to Vietnam this Christmas um, at the ages of 19 and 21. So I would say celebrate primarily both of your cultures, um, surrounding her with folks that would have been naturally part of her community. Um, and then, of course, celebrating extent, um, um, beyond that as well. I, I love that advice. And I think what you struck a chord in me is, is that if you grow up in one environment, it doesn't really matter. You're kind of, if you're, if you don't look like the environment you grew up in, it, it can be hard, but the more environments you expose a child to as they're growing up, regardless of what their skin color is or their, 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 their birth origin, they'll start to be accepting of themselves through the idea that they have familiar now with so many different diverse cultures. I think that's such a great piece of advice. So that's awesome. Well, your book, Embrace Your Edge, is out there. You, people can go, their listeners can go grab it now. Where else can folks go to learn more about you, book you to speak, come into their events, uh, just learn more in, in general about your thought leadership? Where can they go? Um, so my primary website is www.hangwithhang.com. All of my handles are that way, LinkedIn, Instagram, etc. I'd probably say thought leadership wise um, and booking me, LinkedIn is the best way to get to me. Um, and I really, you know, it's just so important for me to share back this mission of inclusivity with action behind it. So I really thank you for the opportunity to share the story and share the mission as well. Well, it's been awesome having you on and I, I love it because it just continues to challenge me. Like what we're doing right now is what you were talking about, right? Absolutely. We're putting each other in a situation to learn <laughs> about someone who is from a different place and a different background. Yet we, we have shared ultimately a shared mission in life, which is to make a positive impact on the world that we've been placed in. And how do we do that by having these kind of conversations? So thank you for being on and we'll have you back on. I know you're going to be working on another book and you've got a lot of other things in the pipe coming down the pike. So I'd love to have you back on down the road, maybe next year sometime to give us an update. Would you be open to that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime I can spend more time with you, Jeff, count me in. Oh, come on now. We love it. Come on. Well, thanks again, and uh, we appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.